Our speaker today is very, very well known. Lawrence Wozden is serving as the 32nd Attorney General of Idaho. He was elected in 2010 to his third term, which makes him the longest serving Attorney General in the history of Idaho. Quite an accomplishment, I'm sure you'll agree, but not the only accomplishment for a man who has an arm length worth of awards and honors. Uh, he began his career early with a degree from Brigham Young University, graduating in political science, pretty good field, and then moved on to the University of Idaho where he graduated uh, from the law school and then passed the bar, and then his legal career was launched in earnest. And listen to, uh, to the nature of his career for a moment. He has served as prosecutor in Owyhee County, Canyon County. He joined the Attorney General's office and has now served for 24 years in a variety of, of posts, including Chief of Staff, Deputy Chief of Staff, Deputy Prosecuting Attorney, and now, of course, serves Attorney General. He's not only a gem for the state of Idaho, he has been honored by organizations across the country for, among other things, his championship of efforts to protect children from internet sexual predators. He has worked feverishly to protect victims of crimes. He's worked hard to advance the, uh, the interest and the rights of those who have been the victims of domestic violence. He has been honored by a number of nationwide groups, including the Aspen Institute as one of America's rising political stars. Years ago, when I was at Idaho State University, I was very proud to serve as faculty advisor to the Honor Society, in, one, in which we honored Lawrence Wozden as the Statesman of the Year. Among the most important pieces of his work, I think, uh, include his efforts to promote public education and the understanding, frankly, of citizen, uh, the understanding, frankly, of elected officials about open meeting rules, access to public documents, and he has been touring the state, and as I understand it, this is about his ninth speech here in this statewide tour as he seeks to educate the public about transparency in government, the importance of open meetings and access to public documents, surely a pillar of our great, great democracy. I also had the occasion to inform him of a very new tradition just launched here at the City Club, and you'll notice that when he comes to the podium that he has a sparkling, dynamic tie, and I told him that our tradition now is for the speaker to leave the tie behind here for City Club members. Please welcome Lawrence Wozden to the podium. Thank you very much. And uh, when I was informed of the uh, new of the tradition, I asked uh, how long that tradition had been in place, and it's and the response was we we were fluid. Is that that was it? Well, I do appreciate the opportunity to be with you here today, and uh, I want to make a compliment to Dr. Adler because I have watched his career at Idaho State University, worked with him while he was uh, at the. Uh, the James McClure Center in, at the University of Idaho. And I will tell you, Boise State is very lucky to have him serving in the Andrus Center at Boise State. Uh, one, one quick thing, I, I saw him uh, in action on a public matter and someone had referred to him as a self-appointed expert. And I take great umbrage at that because he is not a self-appointed expert. He is an expert, but not self-appointed. Thank you very much, Dr. Adler. I also wanted to, uh, to note the presence of Senator Bart Davis, uh, who is here. Uh, Bart, uh, Bart and I have uh, been shoulder to shoulder on many items and toe to toe on many others. Uh, but I appreciate uh, your willingness to serve the people of the state of Idaho in a very difficult time. Uh, there's few, few responsibilities in the state that are as difficult as uh, fielding all of the troubles that come with being a state legislator. So I, I thank you, Senator, for all your effort. I, I didn't happen to notice any other legislators. If I've missed you, please forgive me. 
Uh, I did want to take a moment and make one quick ad. Uh, and this is uh, a DVD called Protect Teens. They're free from my office. You, you have them. Uh, we, you, have, you can get them on, uh, online. Just request them from my office. It's about 22 minutes long. And it helps you uh, set some guidelines and rules that will keep your kids and your grandkids safe on the internet from sexual predators. This program has saved Idaho children. And uh, I, I make, I've made about 100 presentations. We've delivered about 100,000 copies of this DVD. I invite you, if you have a civic club or a, something of that nature, it's worth taking 22 minutes to find some ways to help keep those kids safe on the internet. Um, thank you very much. They're over here at the table. OK, there are some here. Good, excellent. I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, just, just quickly, uh, on that regard, uh, if we can keep those children from being victims in the first place, we have done a great service not only to that child but to our entire community because we are not, we, don't, we can't fix the problems that arise when they become victims. So our, our duty is to prevent them from becoming victims in the first place. Uh, I noticed that we're here at a Idaho State University, Idaho Falls Center, and the University of Idaho, I, Idaho uh, Falls Center. And I want you to know that I have a number of connections to universities in this area. My wife graduated from Ricks College. Some of you may know that. It's now called BYU-Idaho, but in those, it was, in those days it was Ricks. My father graduated from Idaho State University School of Pharmacy in 1956. Uh, my daughter graduated from the pharmacy school at Idaho State University last year. Uh, in fact, my father came and white-coated my daughter to receive her, her, uh, her pharmacist smock. Um, my, uh, my, my father-in-law played football for Lyle Smith uh, at Boise State University. At, at that time, it was BJC, Boise Junior College. Uh, and Lyle Smith is now in his 90s, about 95, I think, 92. And they had a birthday party for him. And remember, my father-in-law played football in 1956, so he doesn't look exactly like he did in 1956. And he walked in, and Lyle Smith said, hey, Todd, how you doing? I mean, that's amazing. Um, now, I went to the University of Idaho. In fact, some of my classmates are in the audience. I graduated from the University of Idaho in 1985. So just so the, you, you know, I've got no favorites. I, I, I have them all covered, okay? Oh, I forgot, my daughter graduated from NNU, and my son-in-law graduated from College of Idaho. So I really do have them. Oh, my mother graduated from CSI, so I got them all covered. It really has been my privilege to, uh, to serve as your Attorney General for the last 11 years, and it's a pri privilege for me to be here to address you today. Um, I received a warm welcome and uh, many kind and generous comments, and I thank you for that. Sometimes public service can be a challenging experience. And so when you have people in the public who are willing to stand up and shake your hand and look in the eye and tell you things you need to hear and you pat you on the back, that's a great, uh, a great thing. When I ran for Attorney General back in 2002, I made five promises. Uh, to, to provide firm and fair criminal prosecution, to protect Idaho's water and sovereignty, to protect Idaho's consumers from fraud, to practice wise stewardship of state lands to obtain the maximum long-term financial return for all Idahoans and to ensure justice for all Idahoans. Don't have time to talk about all of those things, but I want to talk today about the central theme of all of those things that I set out to do and why. That one central theme is the rule of law. And the rule of law is what sets us apart from many other nations. I've spent a significant amount of time working with my Mexican counterparts. And some of you may say, well, why would you do that? It's because we have a significant Hispanic population in our state, and it makes a difference on the ground that we do something. And some of the things that are happening in Mexico are just um, mind-boggling. And I, can, I, I, I got a whole presentation I can talk, you about, talk to you about sometime about why I'm involved with that. But it makes a difference to our citizens in terms of the criminal activities and, and the protection for us and our citizens as well. And what is the distinction? 
The distinction is our regard for the rule of law. That is the difference. At its core is our regard for the rule of law. The rule of law is what binds us together as a society. It's what really brings us and allows us to gel. That doesn't mean that we're going to agree on everything because we don't. As you can see in the past 16 days in some community east of us along the Potomac River. But the, but the rule of law is the, is the basis of our freedom. It's what really gives us as individuals the power to seek redress of our government, the power to exercise religious freedom and, re, and freedom of the press. It's our respect for that process of law that gives us all of those freedoms. It is the source of our security. It's what we, allows us to walk out of our door in the morning and accomplish the things we do every day in life without ever really thinking about the kinds of things that go on in other nations. Now, the Attorney General is unique among elected officials, and that's not because I'm short. It's because of the unique responsibilities that the Attorney General has. Uh, I am not a policymaker. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is I don't choose what the law is going to be. The legislators make that choice. And in fact, it's incumbent upon me to respect that responsibility that they have to make that policy choice. And you, you don't hear me very often talking about my policy views. And there's a reason for that. It's because it's inappropriate for me to usurp the authority granted to legislators. It's inappropriate for me to usurp the authority granted to other state and constitutional officers to fulfill their responsibility. There are some areas where I do have policy responsibilities, such as criminal law, consumer protection, and you may hear me speak occasionally on some of those issues. But I have to preserve the integrity of the office of the Attorney General in order to speak with a voice about what the law is. Part of my function is to respect and guard and advocate the rule of law. And that's why you hear me talk about the things that I do. I want to draw a distinction about the about a difference between policy and the law so we're all on the same page. Excuse me. If we're all in a city council and uh, a citizen comes in and says, I, I, I think we need to have a stop sign at 1st and Main. And another citizen comes in and says, no, I don't think we need to have a stop sign at 1st and Main. Uh, the two citizens are proposing policies. They're proposing what they believe the law should be. As the city council, or we could be a legislature, or it could be the, the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, any other governing board, you select one of those policies and you reject the other of those policies. Once you do that, it becomes the law. You do so by passing a statute or an ordinance. So you're accepting one policy and rejecting another. I oftentimes have folks say to me, well, I'll tell you, it was an issue uh, regarding the State Board of Education. Someone very angry at me and they said, well, we, we're going to do something about the Attorney General because we're not getting the opinions that we want. Um, that was a really tense conversation, actually. Um, not gonna, I'm not sure you could measure the, di the distance between our noses as it ended. The point is, when the Attorney General issues opinions, it's not my personal opinion. It is a professional opinion about what the law is, not what I think good policy is that good policy is for legislators to choose on a whole variety of other issues. But my job is to make the call as clearly as I can about what the law is. Now, let me give a caveat to that. I'm asked to do that at a period of time often when the courts have not spoken. And they ultimately have that responsibility to determine what the law is. So what I have to do is I have to look into a crystal ball and I have to guess to the best of my professional ability what a court will say. There's a certain risk in that. Am I always right? No, I am not always right. But I try the best I can to as objectively and professionally as I can try to divine what that court will say. Now why is that important? It's important for a variety of reasons. Uh, 
But among them is the fact that when your legislature is meeting, and they ask me a question, and the law, by the way, says, Lawrence, uh, you have to answer their question. I try to do that as rapidly as I can, generally within 24 hours, almost always within 48 hours, and then there's a variety of other questions that take a little longer. Why is that important? Because it improves the quality of their decision-making if I can give them an objective answer that's not based upon my own political opinion. Now, I will tell you that there's a number of folks that get very angry because they say, well, you're not, you're not deciding on our side. And the answer is, the best thing I can do for you is to tell you as objectively as I can what the truth is. That arms you with the tools that you need. Uh, I'll give you a, a really quick story on that. Uh, when I was first elected, um, there was a huge dispute about, um, about charter schools. And it just so happened that a lot of the folks that live in my neighborhood, their kids all go to this charter school. There's a huge fight in my community between the charter school and the school board. And uh, the school board, uh, it was really a personal fight. And so um, I, the law said that the charter school had its initial application with the local school board. They didn't want to do that. And there was a number of school, state school board members um, who didn't want them to do that either. They wanted them just to directly file it with the State Board of Education. And so I, I opened the statute. It says, must file it's local. Okay. And so I said that, and that was my opinion, that that was the law. And I had people in my community who called me and said, you are the enemy of charter schools. And I tried to explain to them, it, it's not a function of or charter schools or against charter schools. It's what does the law say? That's the critical point. And I said, if you don't like what the law says, go back to the legislature and change it. And ultimately they did. It doesn't actually advance their cause for me to lie about what the law says. They may think I'm a great guy, but it doesn't actually advance their cause. Actually, it does damage to their cause. Because what would happen if uh, if they were to simply file in the initial instance with the State Board of Education, their opponents would simply go to district court, file a lawsuit, it's a slam dunk win because they had not met the statutory requirements. It doesn't actually advance their cause. Um, what I'm trying to demonstrate is the, the nature of my decision making, and that is it is based upon the rule of law to the best of my ability. Now. In the area of, of criminal prosecution, I have the obligation to heed the prosecutor's special, special responsibility. That special responsibility is to seek justice. It is not to seek conviction. That may, in fact, be the outcome, but it is to seek justice. In that regard, a few weeks after I came into office, I had a, a case that uh, involved the uh, mayor of the city of Boise. Some of you may remember that case. Um, it, it was Brent Coles. He happened to be a friend of mine, and I'd actually been on the campaign trail with him. But the allegation was that he had violated the law and that he had uh, illegally used public funds. And we don't need to go through all of the, the um, details of that case, but ultimately uh, I prosecuted the mayor, his chief of staff, and his uh, human resource director and sent them all to jail. In the context of that dispute, uh, one of the allegations was that, um, that I, was, um, I was charging them because of their religious affiliation, which I found to be rather interesting since it's the same as my own religious affiliation. And it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what is the law, what are the facts, and did they commit a crime? And the answer was yes. So during my uh, 11 years in office, we've uh, handled more than 130 public corruption cases that we've investigated. We've ended up with about, uh, about 50 convictions or guilty pleas on those cases. Uh, the latest of which, we do have some that are ongoing that I cannot speak about, but the latest of, uh, completed case we had was out of Minidoka County with uh, Sheriff Kevin Hal Halverson, a very disruptive case in that community and uh, very challenging uh, events there. So uh, the whole purpose is not whether I like people or dislike people. It's what is the rule of law? What are the facts? Did they commit a crime? 
We have many more requests to, uh, to pursue those kinds of investigations than we have resources to do so. Uh, in 2008, we were doing somewhere between 100 and 150 special prosecutions a year. Um, there was a very significant budget cut. We were doing about 30 uh, special prosecutions a year because of the reduction in resources. Uh, and so it's a, it is really a, a challenge, but I just, so that you have some, some idea of how that all operates. Uh, you're probably aware that Senator Rice pre prepared some legislation last year that passed the Senate and, uh, and, part, and part passed the House uh, to increase the responsibilities of the Attorney General with regard to public cor corruption cases and county commissions. I did not advance that bill. I didn't, uh, and the reason I did not advance that bill is because it really is a legislative policy choice. I'm very careful, as I said, to respect their wishes. And if they wish me to do that, I certainly stand ready, willing, and able to, to take on those responsibilities. But it is a legislative choice. Part of what happened in that regard is that in order for me to accomplish that, I have to have an increase of resources. I have to have bodies to do it with. You can't practice law uh, by computer. You have to have computers, but computers can't go to court. They can't do investigations. Uh, it takes people who are properly trained to do that. In that, in that discussion, uh, there was some discussion that we really didn't need those resources, and so uh, there was a removal of resources necessary for us to do our job. At that point, I then went to the governor and said, this is a responsibility that has been assigned to me. We willingly accept it. However, we do not have the resources to go forward, and therefore I asked the governor to veto the bill, and that's the reason I did so. Um, again, the basis of all of that is really the rule of law and the respect for, uh, for, that, for the law and the responsibility that I have to fulfill the law. In the area of protecting Idaho's consumers from fraud, I have an obligation to protect Idaho's taxpayers. You may be aware that we just completed, I think in July, about seven years of litigation concerning what's known as AWP, or the Average Wholesale Pricing. What was happening is that uh, drug companies uh, were falsely reporting the average wholesale price of drugs, and they were reporting that to a drug compendium. The reason that was significant is because what we were paying in Medicaid uh, payments was based upon a percentage of average wholesale price. So if you, if you lie about and increase the average wholesale price, then we pay more money to the tune of millions of dollars uh, in Medicaid reimbursement. Uh, it's actually what would happen is they, the drug companies themselves didn't receive the benefits directly. What they did was they marketed their spread, and the spread would be as high as 1,300%, uh, 1,800%. Uh, I'd like to have that kind of markup. Um, and, but they would market that spread to the pharmacist is checking which drug they're going to, to, to uh, use. They can see what that spread was, and they would select the one with the highest spread. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? So how did that benefit the company? Well, it benefited the company because they increased their market share because of the number of choices that were being made to select their drug. What was the process I employed? I didn't go out on the state house steps with a 200-page complaint, as some of my colleagues around the country did, cameras rolling and make allegations against every company in the country. Instead, what I did was I sent them letters and I said, look, this is an issue called average wholesale pricing. I would like to talk with you about it. Come in, sit down in my office, and let's talk about it. So some of them took me up on my offer. They came in, they threw their stuff on the table, we dug through it, we sorted through it, and at the end of the day, I said, guess what? Based upon the evidence you've shown me in the, our discussion, I really don't have uh, a cause of action to bring. Thank you very much for bringing your stuff in. Think about the cost of resolving that problem that way. Some of them came in, and we threw all the stuff on the table. We sifted through it. And I said, you know, with regard to A, B, and C, we don't really have an action. Thank you very much. But with regard to X, Y, and Z, we do. And we litigated that. But, but again, look how much... More uh, more efficient 
that litigation is because you've narrowed what you're going to dispute. Now, I had a third group, and all they did was uh, ignore me, or words to that effect. Um, but, but look what that leaves me with. That leaves me one forum in which we can discuss this issue, and that's the courtroom. It's an inefficient forum. Hey, I'm a lawyer. I love a lawsuit. It's a great entertainment for me. But that's the only forum in which we had an opportunity to discuss that. What was the outcome of all of that? After a number of years of litigation, we recovered about $28 million from 33 prescription drug manufacturers because they had falsely reported average wholesale price. And the acronym AWP, by the way, was kind of interesting because during the litigation, we uh, had one of the companies who told us that AWP stands for Ain't What's Paid. <laughs> now, we uh, took some exception to that, went to the court, and the court actually issued an, an answer to us as to what AWP stands for. He said, average wholesale price means average wholesale price. We thought that was quite startling. In addition, uh, we did some, some work on the uh, mortgage settlement, the, the way that mortgages were closed uh, on, uh, robo-signing, and a variety of things that had happened. We helped across the nation to, help, to hold that mortgage industry accountable for its harmful lending and servicing practices. Did we, did we fix the entire problem? No, we did not. But we started down that, that row to, to help the industry change its its conduct. Does that mean I'm anti-business? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that some of the practices that were going on in the lending business were clearly the kinds of things that were unconscionable. Uh, we obtained an injunctive re relief to prevent future abuses and recovered nearly a hundred million dollars for Idaho consumers who were who were harmed in the improper processes that were in place. In addition, uh, $100 million in loan modification, excuse me, and $9 million in direct payments to more than 6,500 Idahoans who had been harmed. Protecting the free market is one of the responsibilities of the Attorney General. It is protecting the marketplace so that legitimate businesses have a, a fair opportunity to compete. Uh, you put Idaho businesses up against anybody in the world in a fair, on a fair field, they can win. Um, it, it's like, a, like the, the baseball game, I mean, or, or, or a football game. What we expect out of that is that the referees make sure that everybody plays by the rules, right? And that's the role that I play in that function. And, and you probably are aware that uh, there's a lawsuit in Boise regarding uh, some hospitals. And again, my role is not picking winners and losers. My role is simply to call balls and strikes fairly and squarely. And that's what I've done. And we'll see how, what comes out in the end with the core. I wanted to talk just for a moment, and I know we've got to get some questions, um, about the rule of law. And there's been some controversial things that have, that have occurred. Uh, I have to uh, give great credence to a number of legislators, including Senator Davis, who stood up on this issue and did what was right despite tremendous political uh, pressure to do otherwise. And that is regarding nullification. And uh, um, Dr. Adler, this is something you know a, a matter about as well. But I wanted to talk with you about that. When the federal health care law was passed, uh, I was among the first of the attorneys general in this country to file a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the federal health care law. And I'm going to talk about that with you in a minute, why I did that. It was based upon the Constitution, and I'll talk about that. But one of the other things that happened is that the legislature then attempted to, or they attempted to nullify the federal law by passing a state statute which simply declared the federal health care law unconstitutional. There's a couple of things I want to remember here, and, and there's a whole dialogue, a lot of things that we can talk about. One of them is this. That is, there was a certain event that took place in our country's history. It started at Fort Sumter, South Carolina in 1861, and it ended at Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia in 1865. And about 680,000 Americans lost their, lost their lives in an attempt to answer a question. That question was, 
do states have the ability to nullify federal law? It's simply another way of putting fact. Abraham Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, said, my job, among other things, said my job as the President of the United States is to enforce federal law in all the states. Now, you think about that. Uh, can a state nullify federal law? We have an overarching federal constitution. This question arose in uh, the 1950s. Um, it arose in Arkansas. What happened? Well, the United States Supreme Court had issued a case called Brown versus Board of Education, in which the court said that you can't have two different school systems, one for children who have dark-colored skin and a different school system for kids who have light-colored skin, that that is inherently unequal and you cannot do so. In fact, it required busing in Arkansas to equal the racial com composition of its schools. The governor of the state of Arkansas and the leg state legislature decided that they didn't like that. So they amended their constitution and they amended their statutes to nullify the federal law. There were uh, nine African-American students who wanted to attend Central High School and the governor called out the uh, Arkansas National Guard to prohibit those students from going to high school. There was a person uh, who was a Republican who occupied the house at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. He'd had a certain amount of military experience. Uh, he, he's the guy that led the D-Day inv invasion. And his name was uh, President Eisenhower. And President Eisenhower then called out the 101st Airborne to escort the nine African-American students to Central High School. Now, I, I ask you this question. You got the Arkansas National Guard on this side, and you got the Screaming Eagles of the 101st Airborne on this side. Who wins that fight? Well, what happened is during that process, and the students actually did end up going to, to the high school, the Arkansas school district filed a lawsuit and said, please, please, please don't make us desegregate our school. Look how terrible a situation this is. And the United States Supreme Court issued a decision in which it said, the governor and state legislature cannot nullify a federal law. Now that's, that's the word on, on the issue. Now when I was asked, can the state le of Idaho legislature nullify the, the federal health care law, my answer was no. Why was it no? It's because the court said the governor and state legislature cannot nullify a federal law. Um, whether I agree or disagree with what they say is not relevant. It is what the law is. And again, it is the rule of law by which we govern our society. So what was the response? There were certain responses, some of them which are not repeatable at a microphone. But one of the allegations was, well, you're just secretly pro-Obamacare. And that was really shocking to me because I was among the first to challenge. Now, I need to talk about why would I challenge it? Was it based upon whether the health care was good or bad? I agree with, with the policy behind the health care law. I do think the health care system needs tremendous change. But that's not the issue. That's not the issue. Whether I agree or disagree is not the issue. What is the issue? Well, the issue is, the, 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 the agree or disagree issue, the good or bad policy issue, was settled when Congress took its vote. It's, it's just like the stop sign. And so, what's the issue? Well, the issue was this, and that is that under Article I, Section 8 of the, of the United States Constitution, Congress is granted the power to regulate commerce among the various states. But in my view, at that time, and I will say sustained by the court, Congress was attempting to regulate something else. What Congress is attempting to regulate was non-commerce. Congress was attempting to require you to engage in commerce. That's not commerce. That's not regulating commerce. That's imposing penalties for your failure to engage in commerce. And that matter went up all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And as you're probably aware, we did not win the case, but we won on that issue. And the court, uh, a five, member, uh, five members of that court said, yes, states, you are right. 
that this would have been an illegal exercise of Commerce Clause power. Congress cannot compel you to uh, engage in commerce. However, and my disagreement of the court comes in this regard, that the court said, but this was an exercise of taxing law power. Now, from the very beginning, I had argued that had Congress done this under the taxing clause, it had the power to do so. It can impose a tax and provide a benefit. It had that power. But if you go back in the history here on this piece, Congress said that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're exercising Commerce Clause power. It's significant under our Constitution. And I disagree with the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. But there is a distinction. That distinction is this. He has a title. His title is Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. I have a title. Mine is Idaho Attorney General. His trumps mine. <laughs> Again, adherence to the rule of law. And whether I agree or disagree is irrelevant. The court has spoken. And it's my obligation to sustain that. I have every opportunity and, and ability to oppose that in Congress, to get the law repealed, or to do something else, but I can't ignore it. Because I live by the rule of law. And we all live by the rule of law. Um, I guess, uh, really, I, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here. Um, the rule of law really is a matter that I hold dear to my heart. Again, in my work, in Mexico, that's what I have been trying to change. And when I was in Mexico, many times, but on one occasion I, I was meeting with Mexican media and they said to me, well, what's wrong with our, with our judicial system? And I said to them, you know what's wrong with your judicial system. You don't need to ask me. You need to be reporting on it. And they said to me, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, nothing. I can't change your system. Only you can. You need to, to work your, you need to change your system. But what I can do is I can stand next to you. We can be shoulder to shoulder. You can learn from my successes and my failures. And I can learn from your successes and your failures. And together, we can stand for justice. And that's what we're here to do today. Thank you, Dr. Adler. Thank you, Mr. Attorney General. Those were wonderful remarks and insightful, and they have generated a number of excellent questions, and I think you're going to enjoy some of these. Excellent. You're, we're going to have a lot of fun oh, here. Oh, by the way, my favorite answers are three and seven. <laughs> I'm glad you got the joke. <laughs> Good. Let's, let's begin uh, to ask a couple questions about uh, your, your remarks on nullification. A couple of, of, uh, of our audience members here have wondered how much did your office spend on the lawsuit challenging the Affordable Health Care Act? Thank you. Um, yeah, the, I, I think our total costs were in the $5,000 range. Maybe it was $6,000. And, and let me tell you how that happened. Uh, we combined with about 25 other states, and then we engaged one of the top um, uh, legal experts in constitutional arguments before the United States Supreme Court, and he said, I, I will do this for a much reduced price because this is an issue of tremendous importance, and so it didn't cost us as much because he, he chose to be paid less, in addition to the fact that we shared the cost with other states. Thank you. $5,000, isn't that about two billable hours for the attorneys here in our audience yeah. today? Uh, I, and I will tell you, it was, it, was, it was about two billable hours for the attorney on, at his regular price, I'll tell you. Good. Following up on that, uh, the, the question arose about the authority of legislators who desire a legal opinion that is at odds with an opinion issued by your office to hire their own attorneys. Does the legislature have that authority? Does it happen very often? And what's your opinion on that exercise in seeking outside opinions? Now, to answer the question, first of all, absolutely the legislature has the power to select its own counsel. The way the statutes work are this, that I have three of clients. I have the governor, the legislature, and the judiciary who are not captive clients but I am a captive attorney, meaning that if they ask me a question, 
I am required by the law to answer. If they ask me for representation, I am required by the law to represent them. But they do not have to get their legal services from me. They can go out to my office. They can do it without my approval or permission. Uh, they're free to do that as they choose. Um, I have a second category of clients, which are major state agencies, and they're required to get their legal services from me, and I'm required to provide services, and then a bunch of small boards and commissions that I can provide services to. So the question then is, uh, it, uh, it was number one, do they have the authority? And the answer is clearly yes. How often does it happen? It happens. Um, I will tell you, my attempt as the Attorney General, is, to, as I said, is to answer those questions as quickly as we can and as objectively and fairly as we can. Uh, and it really lies within the discretion of legislators to choose how often they want to go outside my office and how they want to pay for that. And then I will leave to you as citizens of the state the question of is that good policy or is that bad policy? Uh, that reminds me that those are, that's an excellent question for when our Senate Majority Leader, Bart Davis, returns to this stage again. I'll hold on to this question for you. Uh, when, when we talk about controversies here in Idaho, one of the great controversies is whether the legislature funds our educational system in a way that is in accordance with constitutional requirements. So several members of the audience would like your opinion. Is the present level of funding consistent with the constitutional requirements of our state constitution? Well, uh, there's a couple of things I would say. First of all, a, a question of that nature, as I tried to explain, is really uh, in opposite the responsibilities of the Attorney General to say, is it enough? Uh, my job is really to litigate that issue, which we have litigated that issue, and ultimately the court said that the funding mechanism was insufficient at that time. Uh, the legislature has taken actions to, to alter that. Is it sufficient now? That's, again, a decision for a court to make. Uh, if, if, that, if it was challenged, in fact, as I think we currently have a challenge on that, uh, my job is to litigate that. So it's really not appropriate for me to say, is it the right amount? That constitutionally is a responsibility given to the legislature. Um, so uh, I will tell you that um, probably the most important thing we have in our state and that our state government is responsible for is educating our children. So it's a very high priority. And again, the decision as to how much is enough is really a legislative choice. And you as citizens who say, how much are we willing to pay? And who are we willing to send to Boise to make that decision? You've talked a little bit about uh, the approach your office takes to determining what the law is, what the court is likely to rule. That involves a lot of anticipation. Some members would like to know, when you're looking at a legal question that's brought before your office, with whom do you confer? Some deputies, outside attorneys? Uh, what's your approach? Well, my, my approach in this instance is I am the most brilliant man that has walked the face of the planet. Yeah. That's, that's not true. <laughs> Good. No, uh, the, the, the process that we go through, we, we issue three kinds of, of opinions. There are letter opinions, which are really sort of more informal, but it's done rapidly because it doesn't have all the features of a, of a, um, uh, a well-extensively uh, written and researched piece, okay? Trying to rapidly. We also do what are called legal guidance letters, which are much more formal. Uh, letter and will ultimately be published, and we do formal attorney general's opinion. Um, I review all of those. Uh, I mean, review, I review legal guidelines and attorney general's opinions, uh, but the research is generally done by a subject matter expert and then reviewed extensively within my office. Uh, we, we don't take those things lightly, and, uh, and it, so it goes through a very rigorous process. But I do not do all the research and I do not write all of them. Just to give you an example, at any one given moment, probably at this moment right now, we may have anywhere between 5,000 and 6,000 matters in process. It's impossible for me to pay that kind of attention to every single one of them. I, I just physically don't have the time to do that. Um, and so uh, is the answer to your question. It does, thank you. 
a number of questions about the proposal that the state of Idaho should assume control over federal lands located within the state. Uh, number one question here is, does the state have the authority to claim those lands? Secondly, if the state were to claim those lands, what is your view about the nature of legal protection against the exercise in uh, deforestation, destroying land to build luxury homes, hotels, recreation centers? What legal, what methods are available within your office to protect the dissipation of state land resources? I think it's really important that we understand our history. And I'll give you a quick Idaho history lesson, and it's not going to be accurate in every detail, but in the overall art, overarching stuff, it, it will be. You may remember that there was something called the Louisiana Purchase. And it was a whole bunch of land, which they really didn't know what it was, and it reached all the way up the, the Missouri River and really was the Continental Divide, which is the uh, eastern border of Idaho. So we weren't in the Louisiana Purchase but it's important that I mention that. To our southern border was another treaty called the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, made with Mexico. So we were in that northwest quadrant. In the 1830 period, there was an agreement with, between the United States and the British about who was going to control that northwest quadrant, and ultimately it was the Americans. And that territory became known as the Oregon Territory. Now sometimes we forget that it was the Oregon Territory of the United States. That, that's important. And then it became the Washington Territory of the United States. And then it became the Idaho Territory of the United States. Uh, and so there are certain folks that are saying, well, they took our lands. The problem is we were created by an act of Congress July 3rd, 1890, actually our Constitutional Convention I think was in 1889, uh, general election in November of 89, and act of Congress in 1890. And we became a state. In our state constitution, we disclaimed all title and interest to the unappropriated lands within the state of Idaho. Um, so there are only two kinds, there's appropriated and unappropriated. And so when we disclaimed the unappropriated lands, it was the lands that really were held by the federal government. Now, that's not the end of the story. The federal government held those lands essentially in a trust. The assumption would be that over time, the federal government would uh, dispose of those lands and they would go into private hands. In our own history, in about the 1910s, 1920s, that time period, uh, we said, hey, federal government, give us our lands. You've changed policy. You're not, you're not disposing of lands. We said, give us our lands. The federal government said, no. And uh, so then in about the 1930s or 1940s, the federal government said, hey, we've got all these lands. We want to give you these lands. And our legislature said, no. And we're now back to a, a time period where we're saying, give us our lands. And there's a misunderstanding that we, we disclaimed these lands. They were federal lands to begin with. And that doesn't mean they aren't important to us. They're very important to us. But your question was the legal authority, and that's what I'm trying to answer in our own history. It is we do not own these lands, and we do not have the ability to take them back because we didn't own them in the first place. We cannot simply amend our Constitution and now unilaterally lay claim to these lands which we never had title to in the first place. Do I believe that the federal government has in some measure violated that trust? I do think so. In things like failing to, to pay the, the PILT payments in financial crisis, the attorneys general across the country sent a letter to Congress and said with the sequestration, you're not paying royalties on oil and gas, you're not pay making PILT payment, you're not making payments to the schools, which when you changed your policy in the first part of the 1900s, you said we'll pay you those monies in lieu of of, uh, of, of uh, delivering these lands. And we said, great, that's a deal. Now you can't come and say, well, we're not going to pay you. That's a violation of the agreement and contract that you have with us. So there's some of those issues that we've got to deal with, but we have to recognize the base level is we don't have authority to get those back. We need to work with Congress. We can find ways. The Desert Land Act is one of those ways in which we can work with Congress and find cooperatively ways that we can resolve those issues. 
Thank you. Uh, speaking of federal-state relations, the Governor's Line Commission, of course, has advocated renegotiating the BAT agreement, uh, which, of course, deals with the entry into Idaho of high-level nuclear waste. What authority does your office have, and what means and tools are available to your office to ensure that the Department of Energy would adhere to any agreement uh, that we uh, strike with the federal government? Thank you. This is a challenging question. And, uh, and the BAT agreement really forms the basis of uh, our relationship with the Department of Energy. And, but you need to know what the history of that was. There had been repeated times in which the Department of Energy had um, made promises to the state of Idaho and they simply failed to complete them. And as a consequence, uh, Governor BAT, actually it was started by Governor Andrus, and Governor Andrus uh, asked for Idaho State Police Car to block the railroad tracks to a train carrying nuclear waste. I I'm glad I wasn't that patrolman, quite frankly. Um, but they stopped, the, uh, they stopped the train at the border and, and we commenced a lawsuit against the Department of Energy, basically for broken promises. And ultimately, we resulted in an agreement called the BAT Agreement, in which the Department of Energy made certain agreements that they would remove waste from the facility out here that had been long time stored. They had a time period to do so and there were hallmarks that they had to meet. Uh, and, and if they didn't meet those hallmarks, uh, then there were consequences that would, would be imposed. For example, it would stop the, the influx of shipments to be stored temporarily in Idaho. It also provides us the ability to hold the Secretary of Energy in contempt and he, a federal judge can place him in jail until he, he uh, fixes the contempt problem. Now, this is, a, this is the kind of a thing that the federal government really isn't quite used to. And uh, so we do have some tools. There's also a fine uh, that, that is levied if they fail to comply. I, will, I have to compliment the Department of Energy because they have worked very hard and that the folks we work with here locally are just really great folks. And they have complied with all of their hallmarks, the, the milestones in that agreement until December of last year. And so the, the uh, influx of, of, uh, of waste has been stopped until they meet those hallmarks. And the line commission has, uh, has said, well, maybe we need to renegotiate. There are two signatories to that agreement. One is the governor, and the other is the attorney general. And I addressed the line commission, and I told them that that bad agreement is important. It's important for the trust factor between the department and us. It's the, it's the baseline. Uh, and again, I compliment my colleagues at the Department of Energy for their hard work. But I do think that that is really the baseline where we start from. And we do have a, a, a great opportunity to create a, a good future together. But part of it is the trust based upon the fulfillment of that agreement. Thank you. <clears throat> you, you spoke for a few moments about uh, the role of your office in investigating acts of public corruption. We have some questions here for you. Uh, number one, do you believe that your office is fully equipped, legally speaking, and secondly, adequately funded by the legislature to pursue acts of public corruption throughout Idaho from municipalities through counties and upward? Uh, this, this crowd certainly is uh, not uh, shy about asking questions, are you? Well, let's talk about the, the authority that I, my office has. I'll tell you kind of a sordid and ugly story. In uh, 19, about 1997, 1998, there was a very vicious murder in Minidoka County in which a person who had been released from prison had, uh, was living with his grandmother and he kicked through her bedroom door. She had numerous locks on her door. He kicked through her door and he murdered his grandmother, nearly severing her head from her body. He rolled her up in a chunk of carpet and threw her body out by the Snake River. A few days later, a few weeks later, a 16-year-old girl had gone to this man to uh, purchase drugs from him. She should not have been purchasing drugs, but she was. It just so happens that she is the niece of a friend of mine. And uh, she didn't have enough cash to pay for her drugs, so she agreed to engage in sexual activity to cover the cost. She then had a change of heart, decided she wouldn't do so. So he attacked her, raped her, and murdered her, nearly severing her head from her body, and then he threw her out by the Snake River where he'd thrown his grandmother. The prosecutor at the time um, made a deal with him, and she, uh, the prosecutor, allowed him to plead guilty to one count of voluntary manslaughter on the condition 
that he truthfully testify against the other persons involved in the crime. Uh, she then called our office and she said, I'd like you to come help me. And we said, we'll come help you, but we're going to be in charge of the case. I hope you understand why we wanted to be in charge of the case. And so she was upset when we said we wanted to take control of the case. And she wrote a letter and she said, well, um, and this was a letter, I have a copy of it. She sent it to the Idaho Prosecuting Attorneys Association. She said, she said that unasked the Attorney General from handling the case, because if we took the case and won, we would get the credit and she wouldn't get reelected. And if we took the case and lost, she would get blamed and wouldn't get reelected. I don't care who has credit. That, that's not what I'm about. Um, and so she filed an original action in the Idaho Supreme Court for a writ of prohibition to prohibit us from exercising our authority under the statute that existed at the time to supervise prosecuting attorneys. And the court agreed with her and said that the Attorney General did not have the authority to displace her as the prosecutor in the case. I then went to the legislature and I said, either give us the authority to properly supervise prosecuting attorneys or take away from us this responsibility we have when we have no ability to exercise it. And so the legislature removed the Attorney General's supervisory authority over prosecuting attorneys. Uh, so I, I, in answer to your question, that is a legislative choice. That's a policy choice made by the legislature. I live by that choice. I don't know whether it's good or it's bad. What I'm telling you is the history and now are. So when there is a matter involving public corruption in a county, the primary prosecutorial authority in that county is the prosecuting attorney. The primary investigating authority is the county sheriff. Um, I cannot, what the statute provides is that I can't act as a special prosecutor, but in order for that to happen, county prosecutor or county commissioners have to file an action in district court and an order is then entered appointing me as a special prosecutor. I don't have authority to file that on my own. Were I to do so, it would be in violation of the statute and struck down. So I'm not telling you whether that's good or that's bad. All I'm doing is telling you that's the status of the law. Any change to that would have to be made by the legislature. And the second that question was... Uh, we can move on to the second one. That's okay. Thank okay. you. Uh, very quickly, because we're running out of time. So a couple of listeners have noted that your office is currently conducting in investigations in Jefferson County. Can you give us an update on that investigation? Quick answer, no. <laughs> that's pretty much what I expected. Thank you. Moving on, very quickly, we have a couple of listeners who are interested in both the issue of governmental privatization of key areas, including prisons, and then wondering uh, whether or not you believe that the state ought to privatize prisons or they ought to be run by the state itself. Um, you know, I, I believe in the free market system, and I think that there are great efficiencies that are created in the free market. Um, and the free market has a really important motive, and that is profit. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. That's what allows us to come and pay the fee to, to come eat here today. Um, that's a very important thing. But there's also some functions of government that are contrary to the profit motive. And, and so I think it's really important that we sit down and think about particularly in this instance, the private prisons, the prisons, whether that is consistent with good public policy. Now, here's the question. Um, you, have a, you have a private entity that profit motive, that's a good, wholesome thing, uh, and they make their money, and this is every contract, in every, in, every, in every contract. What you try to do is you maximize your profit, right? How do you maximize profit? You reduce costs. You, it, when you have a set, a set amount, that, that's your income, you re reduce your costs, and you enlarge your profit, right? I mean, every, business, every businessman knows that. Is that an appropriate motivation in the in context of a prison, where the objective ought to be uh, incarceration, uh, rehabilitation? Are those things consistent? Uh, and I, I pose that question now to you. If you want my view, I think that there are some things that government should do, and one of those would be prisons. Uh, and that uh, 
We, we've tried the, the privatization. Are there er other areas where the private market may work well? Yes, it may. But my view is, and I, I'm, I'm delving now into policy because I was asked, that is a legislative choice. They make the choice, not me. And I will protect their, op their right to make that choice. But this is an area where, where we have to seriously ask the question, uh, is this the proper public policy? Uh, very quickly, Mr. Attorney General, your office and you personally are often uh, found in the center of a storm, beset by various political demands and ultimatums. And the, so the question is, how do you as an individual and as the Attorney General, surrounded by partisan demands, ideological concerns, uh, maintain your integrity and the dignity of the office when you are bombarded by competing political demands? As I said, you're not afraid to ask questions, are you? <laughs> There's a couple things about that. One of the things I say somewhat in jest is uh, I have to remind people that my mother likes me. <laughs> but in all honesty, one of the things that I care about is that my mother likes me. And uh, that I have to get up every day and I have to look myself in the mirror. And uh, there will come a time in my career in which the voters of this state may well likely say to me, we no longer want you to serve. And that's gonna be a terrible day for me. It'll be really, really hard. But that's not the day I worry about. It's the next day. It's the day when I get out of bed and I have to look at myself in the mirror and I have to like what I see. And if I can do that, and say to myself, I did the best job I could, I called it fair and square, I stood upon the rule of law, then I'll be satisfied. Thank you. Let's end with a really fun question for you. Now, as you know, the IRS recently announced that for purposes of federal tax purposes, for tax filings, it will consider same-sex couples lawfully married in states that recognize same-sex marriage as lawfully married, permitting them to file joint returns wherever they live in the country, whether or not that's in a state that recognizes same-sex marriage or not. The Idaho Tax Commission, as you know, recently revised its rules and noted that because the state of Idaho has a constitutional ban that does not recognize same-sex marriage or civil unions, that same-sex couples would be required to file as single persons or as head of household, denying them the opportunity to file jointly. The impact of that, of course, is that for federal tax purposes, those same-sex couples can save some, tax, tax, some, save some taxes, but when they're forced to recompute their tax filings in a state like Idaho, they are going to be required to do more work for fewer benefits and incur a greater tax liability. So the question to you, and this may come to your office soon, it'll certainly be an issue before the Idaho legislature this session, as I look in the direction of our Senator, Senate Majority Leader, is will that raise an equal protection uh, issue that will lead Idaho into federal courts? Well, there's a couple of things here. Um, in fact, is there more than a couple of things here? <laughs> Uh, and, and, and the answer really is this, that the determination at this stage is a determination made by the Idaho State Tax Commission. And by law, they are my client. And I cannot usurp their authority to make that decision. My obligation is to defend them and represent them within the bounds of the law. As you mentioned, there is a potential for a legislative uh, action in this arena as well. And I represent them upon their request to me. Now, our Constitution, uh, has some very strict guidelines, and I have an obligation to defend that Constitution and the statutory structures that exist underneath it. And so I don't get to make the call about whether uh, this it, it may, in fact, raise equal protection issues, and we may, in fact, end up in court. But my job is to defend the state in that regard. In this whole, uh, in this whole dialogue, I will tell you that I was dissatisfied or unhappy, uh, critical, of one of my colleagues uh, from California. Um, because she made the determine in that debate that she would not 
represent the people of the state of California when they adopted their constitutional amendment prohibiting same-sex marriage. Again, it's not whether you agree or disagree. It's what is my obligation as the Attorney General. And in that instance, her obligation was to defend the state's citizens' exercise of legislative prerogative and their choice. And she chose not to do that. And I'm critical of her because of that. In this same instance, whether I agree or disagree is not relevant. It is, we have a constitutional amendment, we have state statutes, and my obligation is to defend them. And I will do that. And very quickly, has the Tax Commission asked your office for an official opinion? Um, that's the kind of thing that, uh, that they're entitled to ask for. And uh, they, I do, normally you would say that's attorney-client privilege kind of information. You advise your clients. And so uh, I can't say they uh, have not asked for a formal opinion. Thank you very much. This has been a wonderful program. We can't thank you enough for joining us today and sharing your insights and observations about the rule of law and problems that confront the state of Idaho. Thanks very much for joining us. And as I uh, hand over this coffee cup representing your, your wonderful appearance here, we now initiate this new tradition here at the City Club of exchanging a coffee cup for a tie. Uh, Thank you very much. Then I get your tie.